0: The vampire may foster quickened heartbeats and levitated hair, but is he worse than the parent who gave to society a neurotic child who became a politician? Is he worse than the manufacturer who set up belated foundations with the money he made by handing bombs and guns to suicidal nationalists? Is he worse than the distiller who gave bastardized grain juice to stultify further the brains of those who, sober, were incapable of a progressive thought? Is he worse, then, than the publisher who filled ubiquitous racks with lust and death wishes? Really, now, search your soul, lovey. Is the vampire so bad? All he does is drink blood. hello there and welcome to gilded in blood the horror lit podcast my name is kevin you are joining me on a warm day today it's not actually terrible outside it's not in the hundreds like it will be trust me it will be uh but it's it's getting into the hot months (laughs) where i live so have to have the windows open somebody's mowing their lawn outside the wind chimes are going uh I've got the fan on. It's noisy in here. Hopefully, the noise reduction thing on Audacity will take care of some of that, but it may be a bit raucous while we talk about today's book, so please do forgive me, but uh, I don't want to sweat to death. (laughs) I want to be able to bring this Episode to you. And speaking of this episode, last week I did not give you what we were going to do because I personally didn't know. Just got back from a short little vacation. Uh, just wasn't quite prepared for uh, what we were going to do quite yet. But uh, now I can tell you, uh, as you already know, if you if you read the description of the of the episode you just downloaded or you're listening to, we are going to be talking about. Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. Now, if the image of... Uh, will smith goes across your mind and you're like okay i'm done and start to you know that thumb goes toward the stop button no 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 <laughs> uh, the book is so much better than that piece of junk cgi mess of a movie uh and it's, it's a lot better too than uh the other two versions the the vincent price version which uh, it, it wasn't all that bad but it was it was pretty damn slow and even the charlton heston uh i am oh the omega man that's what it is uh the book is so much better than all of those because the book comes at what the book is about in a much more direct way than any of those other ones really do all of them want to shy away from the fact that we're actually going to be talking about vampires Uh, none of the movies none of the adaptations really wanted to kind of dig in deep on that subject which i think is a real shame because the reason that I'm covering I Am Legend is because, and we'll get into this here in a moment, is because it does something very different with vampires than has ever been done before. And that's good because I personally hate vampires. <laughs> so, well, that's that's going to kind of uh, be the, the focal point of the beginning of our discussion once we get to it. But uh, uh, let's go ahead first, of course, and talk about the author, Richard Matheson. Born in 1926 in Allendale, New Jersey, and died in 2013 in Los Angeles, California. Richard Matheson, interestingly enough, may not be a name that uh, kind of perks your earbuds up. And you're like, oh, 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 yeah, Richard Matheson. A lot of people, weirdly, don't know who Richard Matheson is, but they've seen a lot of his work. Uh, and some of them have even read it. If you have seen a movie where Robin Williams dies and uh, walks through heaven and goes down into hell to find his soulmate, uh, What Dreams May Come, you have seen a Richard Matheson book. Uh, if you have seen a movie where uh, a traveling salesman in this old junkie car gets menaced by this truck behind him who will not leave him alone and tries to kill him multiple times a movie called duel you have just seen a richard matheson story uh directed by the way by steven spielberg the first real thing that steven spielberg really did before he would go on to you know release a gigantic shark into (laughs) into our collective nightmares uh if you have seen uh william shatner Nervous on a plane, open the window and see a gremlin outside on the wing. Or if you've seen the movie version and it's John Lithgow, you have just seen a Richard Matheson story, Terror at 20,000 Feet. If you have seen a movie or an episode, the episode's much better, about a person who comes around and... Uh, convinces this housewife to push a button on this box, and if she does, she'll receive a large amount of money, but at the cost of somebody that she doesn't know dying. You've just seen a wonderful Richard Matheson short story. Richard Matheson is responsible for quite a bit of media that people really dearly love, and especially he is very well known as a major contributor to the original Twilight Zone. Some of the Best, most famous Twilight Zone episodes are Richard Matheson's stories adapted from short stories that he wrote. So he is kind of an underground, uh, biggie in terms of the, the Horror Hall of Fame, and sci-fi and fantasy. He was really known for all of these different things. And just a quick run-through of the awards that he received when he was alive. He received the World Fantasy Award for Life Achievement in 1984. He received the Bram Stoker Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1991. Science Fiction Hall of Fame inducted him in 2010. Uh, he's, he's just, he is one of the bigger names that, nobody kind of knows about. Now, I suspect that most of you listening are, you know, being fans of the genre, probably know him a little bit more than some others. But horror is one of those genres where the biggies really crowd out the rest of the field. You know, you hear about your kings and your coonses and your barkers and your Anne rices and rices and just all of these kind of justifiably famous people. But some of the people who are quietly working in the in the background, those are, are really names to, to think about, too. And it is very interesting to note that Richard Matheson was a huge influence on On some very important people, Uh, maybe the most when we're talking about horror would be Stephen King. Stephen King has listed Matheson as a huge creative influence. And George Romero, the person who, of course, gave us the modern zombie with Night of the Living Dead, said that he based his uh, ghouls, his zombie ghouls, on the, the kind of the shambling creatures from the first adaptation of the book that we're talking about today, I Am Legend. So uh, and, and Rice, of course, uh, said that uh, she was influenced by Richard Matheson, and she is maybe one of the best known of the writers of vampire fiction. So Richard Matheson is somebody that we really need to give a spotlight to Uh Please do read, of course, I Am Legend, but also go into some of his short stories. Some of his short stories are so, so good. A lot of his short stories are very, very good. Uh, It's definitely worth your time to look at his short fiction because it's some of the best ever written. And he has quite a few uh, collections out. Trust me, you will start reading them and you'll be like, I've seen that. (laughs) It it will happen. I guarantee it will happen. So uh, Richard Matheson is our author. Let's start talking about I Am Legend, and let's start with a quick plot summary. Following a nuclear war, most of the population has been turned by a plague into ravenous, bloodthirsty beasts, most closely related to vampires. The lone survivor, Robert Neville, seeks to find a cure for this plague, for this disease, until he is approached by somebody who seems normal, but is something other than she seems. Now, most of you will have seen, uh, it hurts me to say this. Most of you will have seen the Will Smith version of this, of this book. I, I feel like it's, it's just guaranteed. Uh, I am ashamed to say <laughs> that my copy that I read the little cold open out of uh, there he is. There's Mr. Chris rock slapper right there. <laughs> it's the, it's the movie tie in version. It's, it, it got very, very popular. Um, it has, it has, extraordinarily little to do with the actual book uh, but the, the basic setup is somewhat the same uh, every night robert neville uh has to pack up his house has to defend his house against these swarms of vampires who are trying to get in and kill him and he does his best to take as many of them out as he possibly can and during the day he tries to work on uh, what is happening? Why this is, uh, this happening? What is this plague really all about? As well as, uh, something to, uh, to counteract a, a cure of a type. But really the cure is less important than what makes these people turn into Vampires. And that's what I think the, the adaptations really kind of lose out on. They don't really focus on the fact that how would a plague turn somebody into a supernatural creature? That doesn't make a lot of sense. So the scientific mind of this book is actually quite engaging and actually really important to what makes it so, uh, so good when so much of vampire literature Is so bad. (laughs) So let's go ahead and maybe start right there. Let's talk about uh, my personal views on vampires. Now, I, I gotta give credit where credit's due. You know, I like sort of the original vampires. You know, I love the John Polidori story, The Vampire, which is, uh, as far as I have been able to find out, you know, you can do some of your research and then call me out as a bald faced liar later if you want to. But as far as I've been able to find out, the John Polidori story, The Vampire, is the first real known vampire story. Uh, Of course, it comes from folklore and and things of that nature local superstition but the real first fiction story that deals with a creature who li- who sustains itself on the lifeblood or the life energy of another person is John Polidori's The Vampire, which, of course, was uh, conceived at the same party where Mary Shelley conceived of her monster uh, and Frankenstein, its its creator. So, two of the biggest, <laughs> uh, you know, tentpoles in horror literature, you know, Frankenstein's monster or the mad scientist and uh, the vampire were created at the same party. <laughs> Pretty good place to be. So, of course, we have that. We we also have Bram Stoker's Dracula, which uh, you know tied in a little bit more of kind of the local folklore. So you have to give it to those kind of originators. Those are those are decent vam- pieces of vampire literature. It's a little stupid that we haven't covered John Polidori's *The Vampyre* as a short shock. It's coming. I, I promise we'll we'll get there eventually. But the problem with vampires is that they relatively quickly became very standard <laughs> they 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 became boring and worse they became ultimate anti-heroes just sex appeal everywhere <laughs> and it bugs the shit out of me because vampires are supposed to be terrifying not like oh giving me the shivers uh you know uh how handsome or how beautiful i don't think that's what vampires really were meant to be i mean they're drinking blood they are rotting (laughs) they're not terribly sexy and of course this led to uh, just a raft of uh, really, really super handsome, super uh, athletic, super beautiful, super heroic, really, vampires, culminating in what is probably one of the worst things. Now, to be fair, I haven't read it, haven't seen it, but everything I've seen about Twilight makes me want to crawl out of my skin. So that kind of became the nexus of uh, just where vampires have ended up. So, like most people who are kind of of the same mind, I just got really sick of vampires. But there are some pieces of literature that... uh, that Use vampires in a different way, and I think that's what the best vampire stories do: is they don't use vampires as surface level characters—a uh, person who's been brought back to life and who has to drink blood and their struggle with it. That's what the vampire is. Well, okay, that's fine, but that's super boring because it's been done eight trillion times. So, how to make vampires more interesting? How to make vampires uh, worth? my attention. Well, the best thing to do is to use them as something other than they are, namely a metaphor. <laughs> Vampire should stand for something else. And this is why zombies have had such a good uh, track record of being able to kind of avoid being terribly, terribly boring. They usually stand for something else. The the zombie apocalypse will stand in for something else. So vampires do this as well. And the best vampire fiction doesn't use vampires as just their surface level. They use them to represent something else. And interestingly, that goes back all the way to the first, <laughs> the first literary vampire. John Polidori's villain, it's not a surface level. It's, it stands in for greed and sin in general, and as well as a bit of a social commentary. Uh, you know, the vampire in that story is upper class, and he literally feeds off of members of the lower class. So there is metaphor there. Uh, Bram Stoker's uh vampire is not just a surface vampire it's a reaction against kind of victorian prudishness you know the the idea that uh the worst thing in the world is to is to feel desire or lust well uh dracula is desire is lust Uh, you know lucy westerna and uh mina harker fall for him hard and it's not because the vampire itself is sexy. It's because they live in a society where they are not allowed to feel that. Uh, Anne Rice, uh, the interview of the vampire, they stand for something else. They are walking, talking loss of self, of innocence, of the desire for existence. And it makes a lot of sense that she wrote that story after losing her daughter, tragically. So the best vampires in fiction stand for something else. So what do they stand for here in I Am Legend? Well, it gives itself away. After a nuclear uh, war the resulting plague, the resulting uh, mutation caused by this radiation is to turn people into these ravenous blood beasts. And this makes a lot of sense, considering the fact that the book was written in 1954, which is right around that era where everybody's getting very, very nervous about nuclear warfare. Now we have this Metaphor: The vampires stand in for the destruction of the human race, and I think it's one of the best things about this book. In that, Richard Matheson kind of avoids kind of the cliche of post-apocalyptic stories. We're not walking across a denuded, radioactive hellscape, you know after the after the nuclear bombs have uh, have gone off. It, It doesn't it doesn't feel like it was a full scale nuclear apocalypse. Which makes it even scarier. If only a few of these go off, we have no clue what it might do to the population. And that's why this book is so frightening, is that it doesn't seem like uh, everybody was destroyed in this, in this nuclear holocaust. It seems like a few of the bombs have gone off. But look what it's done to the population. Look at what it has rendered. So these vampires do not necessarily stand uh, for just themselves. They stand for uh, destruction. They stand for wholesale, foolish, destruction of our own race by our own hand which uh, you know we talked a little bit about that when we talked about Frankenstein is the real horror in a story like this where uh, something that we have done has created something that may kill us all is that we create our own replacement that uh, we in terms of you know ignoring the rules of nature you know trying to step into the shoes of god we inadvertently create the thing that replaces us and takes us out of existence. And that seems like what is going on in this particular story. Furthermore, Matheson seems to understand, uh, kind of the, the tiger that he caught by the tail here, the, the, the lightning he captured in a bottle. And like all good writers, doesn't just rest on his laurels in that story, but wants to up the ante because then he introduces Ruth, the the woman who finds Robert Neville and he thinks is another human, but she is something entirely different. Uh, she is, in fact, a vampire who has evolved, learned to Uh, kind of escaped the trappings of the vampire and she is the new species she is the new human (laughs) or she is the new dominant species on the planet earth and she represents a society who is seeking to eradicate everything else and in that way matheson introduces this term of evolution that if we play with such a delicate balance of how systems evolve, we have absolutely no way of knowing exactly what will happen (laughs) at the end of that. So I, I think it's a genius move on Matheson's part to take a beast, take a monster that we're all very familiar with. Everybody reading this book knows what a vampire is, but takes it out of its normal context and makes it something very, very different. And I mean that even in a literal, uh, logistic sense as well. You know, vampires had a hard time kind of crawling out of their gothic origins. Uh, even some of the the books that I've mentioned, uh, they they are steeped in that gothic sense. You know, old crumbling castles, uh, ancient bloodlines, and, and all of this kind of thing. Even. Uh, Anne Rice, who did a really good job kind of trying to take the vampire and put it in a different situation. Uh, I mean, she, she has them in Paris and New Orleans, <laughs> which I, I, I guess I challenge you to think of two cities, modern day cities that are more, Uh, gothic (laughs) you know uh, New Orleans and Paris just ooze that gothic atmosphere so she did succeed to kind of pull him out only to be kind of sucked back in so there's still these kind of gothic creatures. Matheson lifted those kind of old hoary gothic uh, creatures and plunked them down in modern day suburbia. You know, clipped lawns, white picket fences, which if that's all he did with it, (laughs) if that's all he did, he just grabbed those vampires and threw them in into suburbia, it would be a little ludicrous. It would be a little bit ridiculous. But... What was on the mind of suburbia in 1954? Probably a big mushroom cloud. So he uses the uh, creature that we're all familiar with as a way to talk about something that is on everybody's mind. It's a genius move. It's what makes this book so damn good. So that is as one of the major things that this book does so well. But what it also does extraordinarily well is that It puts a scientific twist on this. Robert Neville, above all, is a scientist, and he asks the same question that I'm sure a lot of people do when they start uh, reading this book or when they even hear about this book. How does a plague turn people into an already existing uh, supernatural creature? This is not a book where vampire – nobody knows what vampires are. Everybody, Everybody in this universe knows what vampires are, obviously, so, why would radiation or why would this plague turn people into this this thing? It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like uh, you get ill with a flu and then you're a werewolf. <laughs> it doesn't really compute all that much. Well, one of the things that Robert Neville actually asks is, you know, these are standard vampires. They can't go out in the sun. They recoil from garlic. They have to subsist on blood and they shrink away from crosses. Now, that's a really interesting point because Neville actually asks the question in the book that I personally have never asked when I thought about all this, and maybe you guys are a little bit more perceptive than I am. It's very, very probable. (laughs) But I've never thought of this question, but this is the question he asks. Would a creature who used to be Jewish cringe at the sight of religious iconography that holds no me- meaning for it. Think about that. A person who, or, or even say a person who is, uh, you know, Taoist or Muslim, if a cross doesn't really hold any sort of holy meaning for that person, and then they turn into this vampire – why would they cringe from across? It doesn't make any sense. So, that is the basis on which Robert kind of jumps in and tries to start looking at what is this plague actually doing to these people? Why is it making them act this way? Because it doesn't make scientific logical sense. I think it's a genius move because I've never actually thought about that question before. Uh, you know, for a cross to to work on anybody, the cross has to mean something, and it definitely works on all of these creatures. He 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 proves it. He he goes through some uh, scientific process, which uh, just a, a short aside. If anything detracts from this book, that's probably the only thing, and it's just t- a tiny bit of a warning. They it, Matheson really dives deep on the scientific kind of process of test hypothesis theory see and you know going back and re reorganizing it, it becomes a bit just a tiny bit tedious <laughs> after a while you're just like okay, get on to, get on with it get on with it but it, it does result in something very interesting and what becomes more and more clear here is that the plague is not actually turning people into literal according to hoyle vampires it's not redesigning their dna instead it is driving everybody insane to the point where they so believe that they are vampires that their body psychosomatically reacts in the same way Uh, it's that it's that concept if you believe something hard enough It becomes your reality. And in terms of what this plague does to the brain chemistry of these people who have been affected by it, it literally does change them to the point where if they see or smell garlic, they have an allergic reaction to it. If they see a cross, touch their skin, their skin reacts to it by boiling or bubbling or blistering they cannot be out in sunlight because their brain chemistry has changed that has convinced their body so much that if they're in the sun they will die that it actually does happen so i think that's genius <laughs> i think it's it's a wonderful way to look at vampirism from a scientific point of view that makes it so much more fascinating so much more interesting than Okay, well, that human is now dead, and now it's the supernatural creature. No, the, the human is still alive. It's just something very different, and it's functioning on a level that it was never meant to function as. So when Ruth comes along and she represents this breed of people who have grown past some of these trappings, not escaped them completely but grown past some of them. If I remember correctly, she's able to actually be in sunlight. But what she subsists on and what she represents requires Neville's death. Because Neville has become so well-known as this vampire hunter and this vampire killer that he has attained this status, as the title says, A legend, a monster. He has become the legendary monster that everybody is afraid of. You can imagine this new breed of people scaring their children at night. If you don't behave, Robert Neville will come and get you. He's the, he's the vampire slayer. He's the person who kills us all. So it's so interesting that, and that the book ends with this uh, sense that Robert has not only lost the footing as the dominant species in the world but he has in fact swapped places with the monsters that he has uh, tried to fight against tried to defend himself against he's now the monster he is now the the person the one thing that uh, everybody is afraid of and at the end of the book, he is actually put to public execution because his death means so much to the rest of the population who are now ready to take over the rest of the world that his death is a symbol that the old regime is gone, the old species is finally dead and this new species can move forward without fear. It's a particularly somber and interestingly sad (laughs) ending to this book that it gains a lot of ground by putting us in the position of this new species. It's not a book, (laughs) but you you know me, I I love my horror movies. I, I love Uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, Uh, for a long time one of the best Lovecraftian movies that is not necessarily Lovecraft, but uh, they're talking about the fact that normal is only what the majority of the population uh, espouse it to be, that uh, if tomorrow everybody woke up and decided that, or not everybody, but say 99% of everybody decided that squares were now circles and circles were now called squares, you could, you could if you're the last one who believes that circles are circles and squares are squares, you can fight until your face is blue, but you're not going to change the, the mind of everybody. And if everybody believes it, that becomes the new reality. And uh one of the characters in the Mouth of Madness says, "You you would find yourself locked into an institution, wondering what happened. It would be very lonely to be the last of your kind." And that's that kind of elegiac aspect of this book that I really love. It is a scary book, and we're actually going to talk a little bit more about kind of the horror tropes that Matheson does pour in here uh, for for the for the horror readers here in just a moment. But it is also extraordinarily sad <laughs> that, that Robert Neville realizes that he is the last of his kind. That's one of the te- most terrifyingly you know, existential things that a person can go through. Imagine not only that you were ending, but by dying, your entire species was ending. You are the last one. There's not going to be anybody left. It's an uncomfortable sort of realization. <laughs> it really is. And this book plays it Perfectly. It's so well done. And the way that it comes about at the end where he kind of goes out and decides that he's going to kind of stand strong and, uh, you know, live in these people's memories as the last of his kind is, is a little bit heroic, but also, uh, you know, pretty funereal <laughs> in tone. So it's, it's a, it's a good balance that Matheson hits here. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the more horror tropey things that Matheson gives us. I mean, we are talking about beasts who are trying to murder him. Uh, you know, throughout the night, he is consistently just barraged with all of these infected outside who are trying to get him to come out. Not so that they can change him. But so that they can destroy him, so that they can basically eat him. It's, it's really, really disturbing. And, uh, a lot of the people outside, you know, this is a, a, a tiny, a small little town. This is, uh, this is suburbia. He knows some of these people. And some of them try to play tricks on him to get him to come out. It's, it's not just physical warfare, it's psychological warfare. And it's, it's done really, really well. In addition, Matheson knows what kind of story he's telling here. Because of the trappings of the vampire, Neville has to keep an eye on the time when he goes out foraging during the day. And at one point, it's a, it's a wonderful scene. And it's kind of the prototypical horror scene. It's almost like Matheson was like, okay, I know. I've been shoving science down your throat and all this kind of stuff. And the vampires aren't vampires. They're metaphors, blah, blah, blah. I'll give you this scene. I'll give you this, this wonderful uh, horror scene. He's out. He's foraging. And he notices that the sun starts uh, looking a little strange. I mean, he keeps checking his watch. His, his watch says he's got hours before he needs to get back. But the sun seems to be lower than it should be. And all of a sudden, he holds his watch up to his ear. And it's not taking. He forgot to wind it. And all of a sudden he looks up at the sun and it is going down. It is twilight. <laughs> and he jumps into his car and he rushes back and he keeps hoping. It's like, I still got, I've still got time. I've still got time. And he turns the corner and all of those creatures are clustered around his house like they always are every single night. And they look over and they see his car and they start running toward it. It is one of the most tense, terrifying scenes I've ever seen. And it's the, again, it's kind of funny that Matheson is able to take a pretty standard tropey scene like that. I mean, we've seen that in, in hundreds of other stories. And it's to his credit that he is able to make it literally, I mean, heart poundingly scary. I was like, "Oh, oh, this ain't good. This ain't good. Oh my god!" <laughs> it's good. It's it's really really well done. There's not a lot of those in the book, and to be sure, as you can probably tell by the uh, the timestamp on this, this is not a long book. Uh, so I, 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 you know, it's not going to be like an hour and twenty minute episode. As you can already see, it's probably going to be one of my shorter ones for a full book. But he's able to fit in a little bit of kind of what we're hungry for, as well as some of the other stuff uh, that makes this, and that elevates it above kind of a, a standard boring vampire story, and he's able to do it in a really short package. Uh, I would say that this book is almost more of a novella than it is an actual novel. In fact, let me do a little bit of on-mic uh, flipping through here. Looks like... Yeah, I know this is really, really engaging for you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yep, it's under 200 pages. It looks to be 170 pages. That's basically a novella. That's, that's not really a, f- a full novel, but he is able to get so much into this one short, uh, you know, short-ish story, that it's really, really impressive. It almost reads like a novel because it's so dense with ideas and new things that he's trying to do. Now, the last thing I really want to address on this is uh, a little bit more kind of that metaphor, uh, because Robert Neville kind of stands for something else as well because of course we're talking about religious iconography uh and tropes uh, we've, we've got the cross obviously uh cross against the evil beings is pretty blatant and obvious but it's almost like a window into a larger and more interesting examination of our protagonist uh, robert neville uh, for example one of the ways that the the vampires try to lure him out, you know, he's the last of his kind. He, there's nobody else there, and the female vampires know that they're female and know that he's a man, <laughs> so they're uh, they're stripping out there. They're making lewd poses. They're suggesting lewd things, and for Neville, this is. A problem. <laughs> this is a struggle for him. Uh, he's a man, just like anybody else. But the interesting thing is, and forgive me if this kind of tips over into crassness, uh, he did. He does not ever resort to relieving himself. He does never ever resorts to masturbation. And again, as we always say, if an author puts a detail in a story, it's significant. There's there's a reason it's there. It's mentioned a couple of times that he never resorts to onanism. Uh, so he, 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 you know, never gives himself a hand. And that is important. That says that he has this virtue that he does not want to give up. Now, there's an aspect of this that may just be uh, a little bit more faithfulness. Uh, he was married before the, you know before the uh this change occurred and there's an aspect of him not wanting to kind of uh disrespect the memory of his wife but it's mentioned more than that and put with everything else we're going to talk about seems to have a little bit deeper resonance for example uh, being the last of your kind surrounded by vampires who are constantly trying to kill you i think it would be maybe not preferable. (laughs) I'm not going to say that, but I think it would be rather natural if you started to think, well, you know, maybe I'm just going to (laughs) exit. I'm going to exit stage left, take care of myself, and I won't have to put up with this crap anymore. He has multiple chances of committing suicide. He could, you know, uh, there's any number of things that he could do in uh, in his house, but he also multiple times considers just unbarring the door and just walking out and letting things end. And he never, ever does. No matter how uh, filled with despair or hopelessness he is, he never resorts to that. And that is another virtuous thing that he kind of sticks to his guns on. Consider also the fact that he uh, comes across a dog at one point who is who is hurt and he uh, ministers it back to health only for it to die later. It's a really, really rough scene. It's very, very disturbing. Uh, Just, just, you know it, it's it's a sad scene uh, but when you start stacking these up what you start to realize is those of you who have done your <laughs> your literature homework uh, he starts to exhibit pretty much multiple examples of every single one of the seven cardinal virtues now uh, again quick rabbit trail uh, i'm not trying to judge anybody <laughs> that's not my place to uh, or thing to do But it is interesting to note that when I say seven cardinal virtues and I say seven deadly sins, I would put my next four paychecks down that most of you can name a fair amount of the seven deadly sins. Some of you will probably just rattle them right off, but... I bet that few of you can rattle off the seven cardinal virtues. What that says about us as a society, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to say that uh, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? But uh, obviously the seven deadly sins, most of you know, but the seven cardinal virtues, which were created by the same person, he created both lists, Pope Gregory I, the seven cardinal virtues are chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. So if you go through this book with those things in mind. So this might actually be a you know a plus for those of you who have never read the book and who have listened to this podcast before reading it. I didn't give you a chance to read it before because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Read this book with those seven things in mind and see that Robert Neville actually ticks those off with the things that he does throughout this book. It's interesting. He He does all of these. He remains virtuous in the face of temptation. He remains stalwart in the face of an easy out. Plus the fact that he has tattooed a cross on his chest. Uh, It's And of course, his martyr's ending uh, all leads to the fact that Robert Neville may in fact be a saint. That this story may be his trip to sainthood. Uh, he, he exhibits everything that, uh, you know, a religious saint might aspire to. In fact, he, he goes through trial and tribulation and he stays stalwart in his, uh, his goodness. It's, it's a really interesting aspect to read. One that I certainly didn't look at the first time I read this when I was, you know, God. 12 or 13 something like that I, I I didn't have my background quite yet in in a lot of these things that it's it's good to have in your toolbox when you're reading uh, fiction but keep that in mind if you ever do want to read this book I think you're going to see it in a very different light and this of course is interesting in its counterpart to how Ruth sees him uh, you know Ruth sees him as a a murderer, a decimator, a person who her people are deathly afraid of. And it is also interesting to note that, uh, you know, Robert Neville has lived so long without interaction with other people that he is, he's, he finds that he's become this brutish shell of the person that he once was. He's not proud of who he is anymore. The way he treats Ruth right off the bat makes him ashamed. Uh, He's mean to her. Uh, He's brutish to her. So this whole thing kind of coalesces into this growth pattern for Neville as he goes throughout the book. And where he ends up uh, being led out to die uh, as the last of his species, it really puts an interesting spin on this story that if you hear about it uh, of just kind of a, an offhand, oh, it's about uh, the last guy on earth when everybody else is a vampire. That does not even begin to scratch the surface of what this book actually is trying to do. Some of the different things that Matheson is putting together here. So what I love most about this book and kind of the, the final thing I really want to say about it is that it encourages people who read it, and of course, you know, people who read it might go on to write other things, such as our, our good friend Stephen King. It encourages people to take tired, old, overused tropes and and characters and monsters and things, and try to use different ways of telling those same stories. You know, I I think I've mentioned this in the podcast a couple of times that, you know, there's a theory that there are only about 20 stories (laughs) and we just keep telling them over and over and over again. But the, the depression that that might raise in some people's minds is offset by the fact that there's also infinite ways that we can tell the same story. So it's this book almost stands as a challenge. I've always thought that it stands as a challenge to people uh, because he took perhaps the most boring, most kind of closed-into-a-box monster possible, and he used it to talk about wildly different and interesting things. So to me, I see this as a challenge to other people. Take the things that everybody knows and everybody's really sick of and tired of and do something different with it and create another way of looking at something that's really actually quite important. Uh, these are the topics that he's, he's covering in this book. Nuclear Holocaust. Uh, he's talking about evolution. He's talking about our obsession with science. Uh, how easily we are influenced. <laughs> he is talking about, uh, religion. He is talking about goodness. He's talking about morality all of these things from a simple quote unquote vampire tale. It's actually talking about something much deeper, something much more important to the human condition and in 170 pages. So it's a really, really wonderful book. If you've only, if your only, uh, exposure to it has been that Will Smith movie, uh, let me apologize to you <laughs> that's that's a sad state to be in uh rectify that state as soon as possible go get a copy of this book and read it uh, it's it's one of the best vampire stories out there it's one of very few good vampire stories out there go check it out you will not be disappointed Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Next week, of course, is time for a short shock, and I'm going to throw a little bit of a monkey wrench in things. It's going to be a little bit different uh, next week. I don't have a story for you to go listen to. You you have a week off of your homework. (laughs) But I'm going to explain how I'm going to start approaching the first short shock of each month. I'm going to start doing something a little bit different with those. But again, maybe this is just my way of kind of keeping with the same theme. I didn't tell you what book we were going to read this week and i'm not going to tell you what short shock we're going to do next week uh it's nothing that you really need to prepare for or anything but uh come back it's a it's really an interesting one i want you to to listen to it but I, i want to introduce it kind of all on its own so we'll we'll hold off on what short shock we're going to do uh right now for now thanks of course to slaughterhouse for the use of his music that's slaughterhouse with a five instead of an s you can look at his stuff on bandcamp you can see what i am currently reading at thestorygraph.com username libris leonis l-i-b-r-i-s underscore l-e-o-n-i-s you can listen to more episodes you can read some of my fiction you can read some articles that i've written on gildedinblood.com and until next week stay safe and stay spooked